0: With our title today, I've posed a question, as I often do. Who owns UUCPA? Who owns this congregation? And I want to give you two possible of many possible answers, both true. The first, of course, being we do, all of us do. Well, I say, of course, but if you don't know how Unitarian Universalist churches are structured, you might not know that. So um, we just had the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association speaking to us. Um, But the UUA, to which we belong as a congregation, they don't own the congregations, quite the opposite. The congregations decided, we want a, a central organization to help draw us all together and we send money to the UUA to support that networking and all the work they do um, from paying for Susan's time so that she can do things like that and all the other marvelous things she does um, to creating many of the services that have come our way this year during Zoom uh, during during worship for, while we're worshiping on Zoom because of COVID um, to creating our hymnals there's lots and lots of things that um, the UUA does and that's why we're very happy to um, to give our fair share to the association But um, we do that voluntarily, and they don't own any of the thousand or so congregations. We do. That's called congregational polity. It means that each congregation makes its own decisions, especially the really important ones, like do we want to buy or sell a building? Do we want to hire a minister? And whom? And what other staff do we want to hire? The big decisions um, are all made by each congregation and therefore funded by each congregation. Nobody here but us chickens. When we want to make something happen, were the ones who raised the money. That's why we have our stewardship campaign this year. Now, this goes back all the way, um, not only this last 75 years, but if you look at the earlier um, Unitarian organizations that were in Palo Alto, um, as Dan helped us to do when he did an adult religious education class on just that topic a few weeks ago, you can see how our congregations start. This was back in 1895, um, people had gathered to Palo Alto who were already Unitarians or Universalists and came to this new place and wanted to create a, a um, congregation that would bring them together, and they, um, we don't have a lot of detail about why they did that. Um, in the documentation that Dan shared with us. Um, But we know one phrase that I just love. They said that they were going to form a congregation in order to promote moral earnestness. Now, that's not really the kind of language we use nowadays, but it's so much what we're doing right we too say oh I need a place that will help me to keep my moral to follow my moral compass and it will help strengthen me when I know what's the right thing to do but I feel alone or I'm not sure what to do this is one of the things that um, this is one of the places I come to this is the most important place in helping remember What is my life about? And how do I make the right decisions? And now what do I do now that I know what I believe is right? They were doing that all the way back at the end of the 19th century here in Palo Alto, and that's why they formed a congregation. That's how our congregations start. A bunch of people look around, and they say, I need something here. I need something in order to help the world, in order to grow myself, in order for me and my children and the children I know to learn. I need a place that will help take care of of my emotional needs when I suffer a loss or when I'm ill. People perceive a need, and they fill it. That's how our congregations begin. And that was a group of lay people, people with no professional religious training. They just knew that a Unitarian univer- and later Unitarian Universalist congregation would help them to do it. Everything else follows from that. Ministers, buildings musicians come along when people say, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a staff musician or two to help us to carry out the the work that we're doing here? And then they have musicians and they say, we need a piano. And so together we raised the money and bought a piano. And all the other staff that we hire, this was us saying, oh, here are the things that we want to do, and for this, we need these staff people to help us. These things in all our programs and activities, they're all answers to the one question. What is the need we see? What is our mission is another way of putting that. What is our purpose? And what are we going to do to fill that, to fill that need, to answer that call? It all started with a little cluster of people who said, here are the needs we see to promote moral earnestness for ourselves. And then, as it has grown, all those other needs we see in ourselves and in the wider community. When you ask the question, what is the need, it also suggests another question, whose need? Whose needs are we filling? What purpose are we serving? So that the question, who owns the church, is always really on whose behalf do we sustain the church? Whose needs are we seeking to meet? In other words, who are we is always another question as well. Whose are we? To whom do our hearts belong? Whom are we called to serve and help? Now, I want to give you a little bit of um, interesting perspective from, um, from probably the primary Unitarian Universalist theologian of the last century. Um, G- James Luther Adams, or JLA as he was known in life and is still known in death by all. Um, he wrote a lot about, uh, he was a, a theologian, he was a, a professor of social ethics, and um, working on that uh, moral earnestness there too. And he wrote a lot about voluntary associations, as he called them. And when I went looking for a a brief um, statement by JLA summarizing what he meant by voluntary associations and what what was important to him about them, Lo and behold, I found the perfect statement from our own Scotty McLennan. Scotty um, was, until recently, Dean of Religious Life at Stanford. And until he retired from that position, he was affiliated with us as a community minister. He's now enjoying retirement. Um, So uh, he had an essay, and I want to share with you at length um, what he had to say about JLA and, uh, and this matter of voluntary associations, which is to say, organizations just like our congregation. Scotty here. One of Adam's most important contributions for me has been his insistence on the critical role of voluntary associations in mediating between an all-powerful state and an insular individual. I spent some time in the former Soviet Union and in communist Eastern European countries decades ago. I came back with a concrete understanding that has driven me ever since of the importance of strong intermediary organizations that can both provide a bulwark against totalitarianism and a sense of community for otherwise isolated people. Religious organizations can provide part of that, but they need to be prophetic. In the Soviet Union, Religion had no public voice, was not allowed any charitable dimension, and even religious education was outlawed. I was reminded there of the similarity to churches that Adams had described in Nazi Germany that were so lacking in prophetic consciousness and political concern that they created a moral vacuum into which a powerful, charismatic leader like Hitler could march with his brown shirts. Now I worry in the America of 2019, obviously that's when Scotty was writing this, now I worry that we have permitted so many of our mediating bodies, including religious organizations, either to have become virtually owned by the government or to have become so weakened, privatized, and inward-looking that they have lost their power to preserve our commons and our democracy. Adams wrote in 1984, the year I first became a university chaplain, that the prophethood of believers entails the obligation to share in the analysis, criticism, and transformation of institutions, including the analysis and transformation of the church. Now we live in a world of terrorism, holocausts, nuclear weaponry, and indifference to poverty and hunger. I still very much feel, as Adams then declared, that a hand is laid upon us. Now, when I first encountered the idea of voluntary associations in the writings of JLA, it seemed a little obvious to me. Of course we create voluntary associations, churches, and so many others. That's what people do. And they thrive in the United States, where there are so many different kinds of organizations that are not created by the state or by any, um, or by any business and, and in which people aren't aren't paid unless, again, they decide decide to hire staff to help carry out their mission. They are run and owned by volunteers. But I realized soon why he dwelt on it, and it wasn't only because he saw the rise of Nazism and was responding to that. It's the essence of a free church that it is not created by an authority in order to bolster that authority or carry out the purposes it deems important. That it's free to be diametrically opposed, if necessary, to that authority. And it wasn't just the low point of the 20th century and the terrible events of, of the Holocaust and the World War, uh, Second World War and the First World War and all the genocides of that century that made it obvious. In the history of organized religion, an awful lot of the time, this is how it's worked. The church has been organized by the absolute authority of the state, the king, the government, whatever it might be, in order to bolster that authority. Or if it's not an actual state-run, state-owned church, if it dares to dissent from the will of the state, it's out of business, to put it mildly. And that's why our history, as Unitarians and Universalists in this country, of being part of the breaking of the connection between church and state, disestablishing, was such a big deal, why it was so bitterly fought, right up to and beyond um, Edward Shemp, whose words we heard about today, establishing that we will be free, if necessary, to, to transform and even completely change over all the other powerful forces, um, corporate, governmental, in our world. All of which brings me around to the second true answer to this question. Who owns the church? Who owns this congregation? I said we do, and it's true. Anything that happens here is because we, the former members, the current members, and then the future members decide to make it happen. But in another great sense, the church is not owned by any people. The church is owned by the mission. Now we, the people, decide what the mission will be, what the purpose of the church will be. And we decide it by being open to the forces that created us, to the force that sustains life, created everything, forges connections between us, is the connections between us. Whether we call that God, as, was, as um, many of the founders of this congregation might have done, whether we call it the universe, whether we give it no name at all, when we celebrate our freedom, We must be asking, also, free to do what? We could do so many things, having created a voluntary association with a long history and tremendous corporate knowledge of how to make things happen. And what we are going to do is live out our mission which can be in keeping with a larger vision, or it can be very, very narrow indeed, insular and inward focused, as, as uh, Scotty said. And this is the reason, one of the big reasons, that we do an annual stewardship campaign. When you pick up your packet or get it in the mail, you'll um, see that we, if you haven't done it already, we encourage you to give um, automatically. It's what I do. I sign up um, with my bank to send a payment every month in perpetuity, and you know until I change it or end it, there it goes. That makes things a lot easier for you at this time of year. It makes things easier for whoever's on the stewardship team. Um, It's just a really, um, really, really helpful practice. But the fact that the giving is automatic doesn't mean that the decision is automatic. Every year, we each and Altogether, as a community, we reconsider our mission. What's UUCPA's purpose? What's my purpose? And we rededicate ourselves to serving that purpose wholeheartedly. That why, what are we for? What do we do as a community? It emerges from us what we perceive to be the needs of the world and of each of us, including those just outside this property who don't know that the means of their transformation is right here, and of course, including the whole biosphere, this whole great Earth of beings. Sometimes, as we did today, we open our service with the reminder that we are on Ramaytush um, and Tamian land. And in doing that, we're fundamentally questioning the whole idea of ownership. In a way, although I've said we own it, we can't own this land that we've built a church on, that we sustain a church on, where new paint is uh, being put on the walls where we raise a budget to care for our space and make things happen in it. We know that that's true. I mean, I have a deed to my house and the land it's on, but that was created by people who didn't own the land they were selling. Nor do I and my family own it. And nor do or did the Tamyun and the Ramaytush people. Um, in living here, they they dwelled and dwell on it. They use it. They give back to it. They gratefully accept what it gives them and steward its resources so that it may continue giving to them and, and everyone. And we here at UUCPA recognize the wisdom in that relationship with the Earth. It's why we're passionate environmentalists. We know that we don't own the Earth, that we were brought forth by it, that we sustain it, that we try to walk gently and make it more healthy and sustainable by the time of our passing than it was when we inherited it, so that countless other generations can live here and thrive here and, and be on a healthy Earth. All of which is to say, that we, like the Ramaytush and the Tamian, are stewards of this place. We're stewards of the land that people back 75 years ago decided, hey, pretty soon we should buy a piece of land and build buildings on it. We are stewards of this entity, the Unitarian Universalist Church of Palo Alto. We're stewards of this congregation. Together and through it, we serve something bigger than ourselves. That's our mission. We are stewards of the mission, which is why we call our fundraising committee the Stewardship Committee, and we call what we're doing here this time of year our Stewardship Campaign, and it's why we call volunteers Um, who help keep the congregation going, who are the bulk of what keeps this congregation doing all the things that we do together, why we call them stewards. Because we are all serving a purpose beyond ourselves. That's why we created a congregation to begin with, why our forebears did it back in the 1890s and then again in the lead-up to the 70, that day 75 years ago when a group of people said, hey, let's create something here. They were declaring their, themselves stewards of a mission, a purpose, a vision. So... If you've never pledged before, consider. And if you are pledging and giving automatically or any other way, consider again. Your purpose have endowed this congregation with. And if that is what you want to steward in this world, if that is how you see yourself, transforming yourself, and being transformed by others even as you help transform them, and all of us together transforming this world. If that's the mission, then please pledge all you can. Nothing is more important than that mission here in our time on Earth.